When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lexicon Valley is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Language A to Z. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 61, a new installment of Linguophile, wherein we discuss a mystery word or phrase with lexicographer Ben Zimmer. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid. Thank you. And your own self? I'm great. I'm great. Let's get right into it. Ben, you are on the line, are you not? Hello. Yes, I'm here. What is today's clue? The mystery word, this time, has two syllables, okay? Now, those two syllables also happen to make up the first and last syllables of a famous brand of dog food. Alpo. But that's only two <laughs> syllables. <laughs> right. Well, it's the first and last. <laughs> okay, it's going to be ke and un. What's in the middle? Enoratia. <laughs> yeah, that was kennel ration. I, you know, how about puh and uh? You know, I have a Purina. dog. So do you, Bob. So this shouldn't be too hard. Although I don't feed my dog any store-bought food. I actually mm. make his food by Fuck hand. So. <laughs> no, Artisanal Mike, dog food. Did you have to declare yourself <laughs> as a better pet owner than the rest of us? Was that absolutely necessary for the solving this clue? I am so, let's see, that's only two syllables. I think I'm out of dog brands. The brand name actually has three words in it, if that helps. It's a longer name, and it's been around since the 1980s, this dog food. Oh, kibitz. Haha, kibbles and kibbles bits. Kibbles and bits. The it word is, is kibitz. The word is kibitz. We, we are going Yiddish. Oh, we are. We're going big time Yiddish. <laughs> oh, man. Should I get my mom on the phone? <laughs> she wants to kibitz on our conversation? I'm sure, sure she'd not? love to. She's a native Yiddish speaker. Yes. Well, as opposed to, say, kakamemi, which we discussed a while back, which only sounded Yiddish, this one is really Yiddish. So we know then the language of origin of yes. this word. At least the immediate language of origin. Yes, It right. can get more complicated, especially with Yiddish, when you're trying to figure out etymologies, because Yiddish comes into contact with many other languages. German, Russian, Polish. If you go back far enough, Hebrew, Aramaic, you know, the, uh, Romance languages, there are a lot of different influences in there, all kind of mixed in together. So Dothraki. 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 There you go. <laughs> Bob, did you and I say that at the same time? Must have, because I didn't even hear you say it. We must have perfectly overlapped. So Ben alluded to my mom possibly wanting to kibitz with us, which suggests its meaning, which is, Bob, I'll, I'll let you take it. Well, to me, it's kind of the convergence of small talk and backseat driving. Yeah. Commenting on something that might be uh, 
unnecessary or unwanted. None of your fucking business. None of your business. <laughs> <laughs> when you're playing gin rummy and there's someone behind you telling you the card you should have played, that's kibitzing. But so is just talking about the kids, right? And, and what disappointments they all are to you. Yeah, two people could <laughs> kibitz and have it not be annoying to one another, right? They could right. just be having a conversation that's about sports or about the weather. Well, it's definitely extended into lots of different meanings, both in Yiddish and in American English. Bob sort of gave the canonical example of somebody kibitzing would be somebody looking over your shoulder while you're playing cards and making comments about the card game that's going on. Actually, I would suggest that what we've been doing just now for the past two, three minutes is kibitzing, and probably more so you and me, Bob, because we really don't know as much as Ben does about this word. You're right. Kibitzing comes with it a notable lack of authoritativeness. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Although the person kibitzing could think they're authoritative when, in fact, their knowledge may be superficial. It can describe a kind of a, a know-it-all, injecting advice that really isn't warranted because it's not backed up by anything. That's another possible shade of meaning there. And that's back to the backseat driving. So right. it kind of ebbs and flows. It waxes and wanes. Yeah. It schmuckles and duckles to invent <laughs> two Yiddish words that don't exist. That sounded authentic to me. So I have it in my head that like every Yiddish word comes from sometime in the late 18th century to late 19th century when Yiddish probably really blossomed. Now I'm just kibitzing here. I don't know if that's <laughs> actually true, but that's the century in which I would place this word. What about you, Bob? Makes sense to me. And this particular one seems to come, as so much Yiddish does, from German. You know, the ending of it sounds mm -hmm. pretty Teutonic to me. But again, I'm just kibitzing. I know from <laughs> nothing. Mr. Professor knows from nothing. And it's hard to imagine that Jews didn't have a word that meant this in whatever language they were speaking before they spoke Yiddish in Europe, because having minor annoyances seems to come with being Jewish, right? And also commentary, right? I mean, what goes deeper right. in the Jewish tradition than commentary over, on the uh, loftier side, the Talmud and commentary over laws, which is endless, and then the way your daughter-in-law makes a brisket, it's everywhere. I feel like we're flirting with anti-Semitism right now. Stereotypes, stereotypes. Stereotypes, yeah. Well. yeah. But I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm entitled. You know, I'm, I have a Yiddish mama, so. American Yiddish speakers like your mother would have grown up knowing this word very intimately. I mean, it was, you know, a real important part, you can say, of the American Yiddish lexicon. And we can identify that that's been true, not going as far back as you were saying, but if we were look, just looking at the American Yiddish situation, we've got very sort of firm sources of how this word developed since the turn of the 20th century. So obviously that was a time when there, we talked about this with Kakamami also, this is a time when, you know, lots of Yiddish speakers were coming and settling in New York, especially Lower East Side. And so we have this sort of very active Yiddish speaking culture that is becoming sort of integrated into American life around that time. Norfolk Street. That's where my grandmother lived when she came through Ellis Island on the Lower East Side. When was she there? When did she uh, come over? In the 1920s. Well, even before that, you can find this word showing up in sort of sources in and around New York. 
in Yiddish and in English. In Yiddish, for instance, there was a writer who came over from Belarus, came to the U.S. His name was uh, Josef Tunkel, and he published a humorous journal that was called Der Kibitzer in uh, 1909-1910. But also in 1910 is the earliest example that I've been able to find so far of its use in American English. That's in an article that appeared in the New York Tribune, and it describes a beer saloon on the east side, which has a club room annex where scat and pinochle are the chief attractions. Ah, you know, it's funny because when Bob mentioned, I think it was gin rummy and having your partner or somebody looking over your shoulder suggesting a card that you should have played, I was thinking pinochle because... As anyone who plays a card game that involves partners like Bridge or Pinochle or any of those trick and trump games, it's actually more than a minor annoyance to suggest to your partner that they should have played something else because it turns from kibitzing into, I think, full out arguments. <laughs> so yeah, I was in fact thinking Pinochle. Right. So apparently they're playing Pinochle and other card games at this saloon on the east side. And it describes visitors who are not satisfied with playing the silent part of kibitz, discuss intricate problems in science, religion, and statecraft. This is interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, we have kibitz being used sort of as a noun rather than kibitzer to describe the person. But I'm also interested by the fact that it says the silent part, which suggests that maybe we're just talking about onlookers. They don't even necessarily have to be making noise or making commentary. Although they could be making facial commentary. That's true. But anyway, that's the earliest example I was able to find. Also in the New York Tribune, a little bit later in 1916, I found a very interesting example in a piece by a writer named Montague Glass. Now, he was a Jewish lawyer, originally from Manchester, England, actually. But he came to the U.S. and he would write a lot of these sort of Yiddish dialect pieces that would get syndicated in newspapers. In this piece that he wrote in 1916, we have two characters named Zap and Bersky. And they are discussing a heavyweight fight that had happened between Jess Willard and Frank Moran that was at Madison Square Garden. And they're talking about how this fight, this sort of bloody heavyweight fight, was attended by doctors, lawyers, even judges of the New York Supreme Court. And so Bersky says, I leave it to you, Zap. If a judge of the Supreme Court enjoys such things, it's a whole lot more bekovet, and that's a word meaning dignified, it's a whole lot more bekovet for him to go to a hospital and kibitz an operation. <laughs> <laughs> so we're already getting kibitz as a verb and a transitive verb. And it even goes on to sort of imagine what this judge would say as if he were attending a boxing match, but it's really, you know, a surgery, how, you know, the patient goes under the ether and he's shouting, attaboy, Professor Dr. Von Schlachthaus, eat him up. You've got him groggy. <laughs> it's groggy again, which we've right. discussed in the past. But, but it, you know, again, that's a more benign form of kibitzing. That's kind of rooting. <laughs> I'd expected that the joke would be that the judge is going... That's how you put in a sponge? This right. is how you use a <laughs> retractor? That's how you take out a gallbladder? So we get these early glimpses of it in American English, but it doesn't start catching on in a serious way until the 1920s. And it really starts in 1929, because in 1929, there is a Broadway comedy called The Kibitzer. Oh. Now, the star of this play, who also co-wrote it, was a young Jewish actor 
whose family had moved to New York from Bucharest, Romania. And he had recently changed his name from Emanuel Goldenberg to a more famous stage name. Do you happen to know who Emanuel Goldenberg became? Kirk Douglas. <laughs> a little earlier than Kirk Douglas. <laughs> Try again. Just throw it out there. <laughs> well, I, you know, I would have thought maybe like George S. Kaufman, but clearly you don't bother going from Emanuel Goldenberg to George S. Kaufman, who, by the way, I don't even think was an actor, just a writer. So. Just a writer. Yeah, we're yeah. looking for an actor, famous actor, very famous in the 30s, but not quite famous at this point in 1929. Leo G. Carroll. Uh, more famous. No, Edward G. Robinson. How about there you go. Yes. There Edward go. G. Robinson. He was Emanuel Goldenberg. Before he became a movie star, he was just starting out on Broadway in this show called The Kibitzer. And Edward G. Robinson plays a character named Lazarus. He's a talkative cigar store owner. And there are people who gather at his cigar store every night to play, guess what, Pinochle. It's a great game. Yeah, and he is giving unwelcome advice to those guys who are at his store, the Pinochle players. So this 1929 Broadway show with Edward G. Robinson was actually made into a film the next year in 1930, one of the early talkie films. Now, what's interesting is they made this into a Hollywood movie, but they kept that ethnic-sounding title, which is an interesting choice for them to make. Apparently, in the UK, the movie came out under the title The Busybody. <laughs> but in the US, they kept it as The Kibitzer. There's a very interesting book by Ted Merwin called In Their Own Image, New York Jews in Jazz Age Popular Culture. And Merwin talks about this decision that they make to keep that ethnic-sounding name. And the studio, Paramount circulated a press sheet that was supposed to explain to movie theaters how you were supposed to promote this movie with this funny-sounding title. So the fact that they kept the title as the kibitzer doesn't necessarily mean that that word was familiar enough to most Americans that they would recognize it immediately. It just suggests that they wanted to preserve the flavor of this word and felt that they actually needed to talk to theater operators about how to market this? How to explain it to the audience? Exactly. So this is from the press sheet. It says, to millions of persons, this word as yet means nothing. That's why it is a wow title. For a full meaning of the term is only realized after the public has seen the picture. Now, the public, of course, here is understood to be the non-Jewish public. Attention, Goy. (laughs) This movie is going to go way above your head if you don't listen to what I'm saying right now. It gets better. So the studio publicists say that the movie will make the American people kibitzer conscious. And it did, actually. This word became something that Americans knew based on this movie. So the theater owners were given all this material that was supposed to pique the curiosity of moviegoers about this movie with this weird title. There were posters and cutouts that were sort of making fun of the character of the kibitzer and what a know-it-all he is. My favorite part is the studio suggested that theaters run contests for people to come up with the best definition of kibitzer. They encouraged famous people to come up with their own definitions of the word. They even said that the uh, theaters should give out Kibitzer Union membership cards that would certify the bearer to butt in on any conversation, correct the mistakes of card, golf, and billiard players, 
and perform other irritating services. <laughs> yeah, sign me up for that. So, I mean, this is really fascinating, I think, because, again, this is uh, three years after The Jazz Singer, and you'll remember that The Jazz Singer has Yiddish in it. It has Hebrew in it, mm -hmm. right? But when The Jazz Singer came out, the program that they gave out included a glossary of Yiddish and Hebrew terms. It was treated as a sort of very foreign thing, but they took this much more playful approach with the kibitzer, where the goys, the non-Jews, are actually encouraged to make up their own definitions of the word, and so it seems a lot friendlier, you know. It's something that you can connect to, this bit of Yiddish-inflected ethnicity. And maybe because they were encouraging people to come up with their own definitions of the word, maybe that did something to expand the meaning. You know, we talked about how kibitz can just mean kind of uh, chit-chat and things like that. They were sort of taking the defining into their own hands that way. Yeah, and in fact, I think that when I use that word, which is on occasion, I'm most likely to use it without any pejorative overtones. Right. Just let's have a chat. And I'm uh, much more on the busybody side of things. You the guy that's been tailing me? Yeah. The name's Jones. Harry Jones. I want to see it. Uh, swell. Do you want to see those guys jump me? I didn't care one way or the other. You gotta yell for help. The guy's playing a hand, I let him play it. I'm no kibitzer. You got brains. Get my hat with you. We will be back in just a minute, but first, being a lifelong learner means that you are constantly seeking knowledge for the pure pleasure of learning, which is why I am happy to have the great courses as our sponsor. The Great Courses has been around for 25 years and over that time built up about 500 courses on history, psychology, physics, philosophy, and of course, linguistics. One of the courses that I've been watching recently is Language A to Z by John McWhorter. I've talked about individual episodes of that course. Each episode focuses on a word beginning with a different letter of the alphabet. And wouldn't you know that the Y episode is about Yiddish? Yep, I'm not going to give it away. You'll have to check it out. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. You can get up to 80% off the original price of any of eight of their best-selling courses, including language A to Z. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. That's thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. Wait a minute, Scotty. You won't need any boots. When it comes, you go back with the others. You don't belong out here. I didn't belong at Alamein or Bougainville or Okinawa. I was just kibitzing. And I also write a very good obit, obituary to you. Just ignore me, please. <laughs> Here's an interesting example from 1955, which just shows like how common it was already by 1955. So Edward R. Murrow at the time hosted a television show, Bob is probably aware of it, called Person to Person. Mm -hmm. He sat there in a bare studio in a cloud of his own cigarette smoke interviewing some personage, often a celebrity, not necessarily a right. newsmaker, right. to uh, get inside you know, the real Conrad Adenauer or whatever. <laughs> right. So it was live celebrity interviews, but they were doing it remotely. I mean, that was sort of a, a new thing that Murrow could be sitting there in a studio in New York and talking to someone from their home wherever, and they're having this conversation. So in uh, 1955, I guess Murrow was busy. So they had Margaret Truman as the guest host. 
Who did they have Margaret Truman interview? Well, her own parents, Harry and Bess Truman, as they are in her childhood home there in Independence, Missouri, basically instructing her parents to kind of give the audience a tour of the house. So we show sort of Bess Truman walking from one room to another, and she's muttering something under her breath. And Margaret says, no kibitzing, mother, no kibitzing, no kibitzing. Now, the Trumans, correct me if I'm wrong, they were not Jewish, right? They were pretty far from Jewish, I'm going to say. <laughs> pretty goy as you can get, I'm going to say. Yeah. And they were Midwestern, you know. That shows just how successful the word became in American English. But let's go back to the Yiddish roots of this word. Like I said, it does go back to those onlookers at card games very clearly. That's something that's sort of a common thread through all of this. There is a fellow named Eli Culbertson, who did a lot to popularize contract bridge. That's mm -hmm. when sort of bridge became very popular. And he was quoted in newspapers in 1935, giving a whole breakdown of a kind of a typology beyond just the kibitzer. And so he explained, a kibitzer is one who has asked and received permission to watch. He may participate in discussion with the players. Then he says, a dorbitzer is one who has asked and received permission of the kibitzers to join them. He may speak to the latter, but not to the players. And then finally, you have a tzitzer, T-S-I-T-S-E-R, is one who has asked permission of nobody. His rights are strictly limited to hovering in the background and expressing his sentiments by exclaiming, making that tisk tisk uh, noise. All right, so we're getting a notion of the various shades of meaning, but there's something you said in the beginning about the etymology, which kind of blew me away, and that is that it has uh, roots not originating in Yiddish. And it, to me, it is a linguistic gefilte fish. It's hard for me to imagine <laughs> it having not been part and parcel of Jewish culture. Well, let's look at what the references tell us. One source that we can look at is the 1925 edition of a Yiddish-English dictionary by a scholar named Alexander Harkavi. And it defines kibitz as sarcastic remark, kibitz in the verb to rail, banter, make fun, kibitzer, the noun meaning railer or banterer. Now, he also adds a footnote, and this footnote is in Yiddish, which I do not read, but I have Ben Sadak to thank for helping me with this. And so this is the translation of Harkavi's footnote. He explains it's from the German kibitz, that's spelled K-I-E-B-I-T-Z, meaning an annoying look onlooker at a card game. And he explains it's actually a certain bird, where the German word comes from, actually a certain bird that typically takes over the nests of other kinds of birds. Then he explains the Yiddish meaning apparently comes from the fact that onlookers at a game often amuse themselves at the player's expense. Now, where would Harkavi have gotten his information from? Well, this connection had been made already in German sources. So even before it really comes on the scene in American Yiddish and American English, there's this connection being made between this name of a bird called a kibitz and these onlookers at card games who had that name as well. Now, in English, this bird is known under various other names, the lapwing, the plover, or it's also called the peewit. And you might be able to guess that peewit, like kibitz, is actually onomatopoetic. It's imitating the call of this bird. 
in breeding season, the male of the bird, I guess, is making this kind of display flight for the females. And all the while, it's making this loud, shrill peewit, peewit, or kibitz, kibitz, if you're German, <laughs> during, during the time that it's flying around in this odd, erratic fashion. It should probably be mentioned that other birds know this bird as the asshole, right? <laughs> it comes off kind of as the, the asshole of the bird community. I mean, you, you heard uh, Harkavi already say this is a bird that, like, goes into other nests and takes them over. There are actually a lot of kind of superstitions and other sort of stories about this bird, which I think are not necessarily true. This actually shows up in English, too, including in Shakespeare. Now, Shakespeare knew this bird as the lapwing, and in a few different places in Shakespeare's plays, he talks about the lapwing in order to sort of, in a metaphorical fashion, to describe a person as being like this bird. So, for instance, in the Comedy of Errors, we get uh, a line, "'Far from her nest the lapwing cries away.'" Now, this has to do with an idea that people had about this bird, that in order to lure people away from its nest, it would fly away and cry very loudly when it was far away from the nest. So to bring up another example that appears in Shakespeare, the lapwing, again, as Shakespeare knew the bird. Wait, I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess. Are you, is it going to be from Hamlet? I'm pretty sure. Yes, Hamlet. Good, good. Do you remember the scene in Hamlet where, uh, where that word shows up? I'm very familiar with Hamlet. It's one yeah. of my favorites, but I right. don't know this scene. Oh, for crying scene. out loud, Mike. This embarrasses me. Act one, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in the Pinochle game. <laughs> <laughs> Duh. Oh, of course, boy. The famous Pinochle game. Well, there's, there's a scene where Hamlet and Horatio, they're not playing Pinochle. What they're doing is they're making fun of Osric, who's the foolish courtier. Mm-hmm. And uh, Horatio says, this lapwing runs away with the shell on his head. So uh, Shakespeare is playing with this common belief about this bird that it was so anxious to be hatched that it couldn't wait to get out and it would just start running around with part of the shell stuck on its head. Right. Now, unfortunately, this does not seem to be true either about the bird. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure we would see lots of very cute YouTube videos of this happening. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> but again, it's, this has to do with the reputation of the bird. The bird has been maligned, you're saying, unfairly. Well, I think part of it is just the fact that it had this crazy flight pattern and perhaps irritating peewit, peewit, or kibitz, kibitz noise while it was doing that. And these other stories then end up sort of developing around this bird that's a bit noisy and strange in the way that it's flying. So there's an interesting explanation for how you get from the bird to the onlooker that's given by H.L. Mencken. H.L. Mencken wrote his monumental work, The American Language, and in uh, the first supplement to that from 1945... We should just mention H.L. Mencken, a newspaper reporter, famously lived in Baltimore, wrote for Baltimore newspapers, was a wordsmith of sorts, and an oft-quoted commentator on language. Right. And this sort of multi-volume work that he did on the American language, people were writing to him with uh, where these sort of Americanisms came from. And so he would quote these correspondents. And so there's a correspondent that tells him how Kibitz got its name from this German bird name. But the correspondent actually traces it all the way back to the 1840s. And there's this story about a general in the old Austrian army. And the general had a dog named Kibitz, 
after the bird. So perhaps we can guess that this dog is a yappy little thing that likes、mm-hmm. to jump around, and that's why you would call a dog a kibitz. Then what happened, according to the correspondent, was that the word got humorously applied by line officers to the members of the Austrian staff corps that worked f- under this general. Basically, the line officers thought that the staff corps officers were merely onlookers. Then Mencken's correspondent says this onlooker sense goes from the army to getting used in the cafes of Vienna. It seems a little convoluted,、mm-hmm. although you know、yeah. also quintessential, because staff officers have always been dismissed by line officers as you know functionaries who just get in the way and don't really contribute anything to the war effort. Right. Yeah, it's always been true. Yeah, so the war effort at this time was the Italian campaign of the 1840s, but apparently it was sort of similar situation between those two groups of officers. But like you said, it's a little circuitous and cumbersome to make those series of leaps, and it seems to violate, for me anyway, to my ear, it seems to violate the principle of Occam's razor. Why would you need these <laughs> leaps when really you could go straight from the bird? To the onlooker without too、yeah. much trouble, right? And there were no Jews in the Austrian army. I mean, come well, on, let's that's face true.、It. That's also a good point. It seems to leave out the Jews in this explanation. But Mencken's correspondent is basing this on、uh, apparently on documents that were left over from these Austrian officers. I have no idea if that story is really true. But the idea that it ends up becoming popular in the mid 19th century in the cafes of Vienna, we know that that is true. Because we have sources, we have German and Austrian sources where this word "kibitz" in you know what's becoming this new sense of onlooker is getting used, and so in fact there's a chess journal that was published in Vienna in 1855, and it talks about a gaping crowd of it uses the word "kibitzen" watching chess matches at a popular cafe. So that fits very well with that story that Mencken relayed. Okay, Ben. So there it is. It all began with this bird and the sound it makes, and it became synonymous with this kind of、uh, unwelcome chirping. And that's it. We're done, right? Oh, not so fast, Bob. It's never that easy, especially I think when it comes to these Yiddish etymologies, because a lot of etymologists have suggested that this connection. Between the onlooker kind of kibitz or kibitzer and the name of the bird in German is actually a kind of folk etymology. With folk etymology, you can have one word that's kind of similar to another word, and people assume that they must be related. And in fact, that assumption can then actually change the form of the word as well. So there was a kind of German criminal argot that was known by a couple of different names. It was known as Rotwelsch, R-O-T-W-E-L-S-C-H. It was also called Gaunersprach, which literally means crook language. And in this criminal argot, there was a word not exactly kibitz or kibitz, but kivish, and that's spelled K-I-E-W-I-S-C-H. And that word in criminal slang would refer to a kind of investigation, or a search, or an inspection. Now, where did that word come from? Well, a lot of this criminal slang 
took words from Yiddish, this older form of Yiddish. We're not talking about the Yiddish that sort of comes over to the United States with, you know, Eastern Europeans. We're talking about this older form of Yiddish, and the words that are coming from that older form of Yiddish very often are ultimately coming from Hebrew. So there's actually a Hebrew noun. Again, we're entering into some areas where nothing is really clearly very established. But there's a Hebrew noun, kibush, which literally means oppression. And scholars have suggested that this Hebrew word gave rise to this German thieves jargon, kivish. Now, there's something that would still need to be explained there. They're not exactly the same word, and the meaning seems to be different. How do you get from oppression to inspection? Uh, you know, I can make the leap from oppressor to investigation, because if you're a German criminal, the oppressors, which is to say the cops in the society, the man, are constantly harassing you and shaking you down. So mm -hmm. that kind of scans. But okay. if, if what you're saying is right, this word started in Hebrew, mm -hmm. found its way into Western German-based Yiddish, right. into German criminal argot, mm -hmm. came back out again into Yiddish, the Eastern European version, right. which crossed the ocean and made Edward G. Robinson famous. Exactly. So this word kivish, which the German criminals were using, scholars at the time were actually trying to record what this criminal argot was. And the range of meanings is kind of interesting. Again, the, all under the general idea of inspection. That kind of inspection included a gynecological exam of a prostitute. Mm. It would include uh, hustlers who would be checking each other out to make sure they weren't ripping each other off. So you can see that kivish, this word, could have also been used, say, in card games if a player was trying to see another player's cards. Mm. So this idea, again, of looking over someone's shoulders to see their cards would definitely fit into that whole theme of inspection, of inspection that we find in this word kivish. Now, do you know about this gynecological inspection, or are you just speculating? <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> so if I could borrow the phrase from earlier in this discussion, it's a kind of silent kibitzing often when somebody's mm -hmm. looking over your shoulder because you just know that they're right. thinking that you did something wrong. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So this whole story, you know, this is a, one of these cases where there certainly is no easy explanation for this, but this is the, the best working theory, let's say, of how we got to this word. I really appreciate, Ben, that you unspooled this going back in time because, you know, you start with the word like kibitz, and as Bob said, it's the gefilte fish of words, right? It seems imbued with Jewishness from the get-go. And then you take it out of a Jewish context and you think, oh, well, maybe it doesn't have anything at all to do with the Jews. And it actually started in German or Austrian military circles. But that, but no, back to the Jews. <laughs> back to the Jews, yes. Well, I mean, it was, it was kind of fascinating. You know, I, I think if he had cited his facts in a different order, it might have been more fascinating. I mean, I think... Uh, <laughs> you didn't like going you know, back in time? I think we could time? have started with Austria. I mean, that's how I would have done it, but whatever. You know, he's the ex. Oh, here we go. <laughs> with the kibitzing. <laughs> All right, Ben. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you, Ben. Always fun kibitzing with you guys. All right. If you, and I know you do, if you listeners would like to kibitz with us and 
tell us that we're putting the mystery word in the name of the episode and you would prefer that we didn't do that. Or just want to schmooze. Yeah, schmoozing, kibitzing, schmuckling, and duckling. Whatever you want to do, just please write to us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley and subscribe to our feed in iTunes. Lexicon Valley is part of the Panoply Network. To find out all of the great shows in the Panoply Network, go to iTunes.com slash Panoply. Ben Zimmer is the executive editor of Vocabulary.com, where his column this week will have much more about the word kibitz. He also writes a column about language for the Wall Street Journal. Joel Meyer is our managing producer and Andy Bowers, our executive producer. All right, Mikey. We done here? Yeah, we're done. All right. Later, skaters. My baby don't care for Mr. Tibbetts. She'd rather have me around to Kibbetts. Roy Rogers is not her style. And even Clark Gable's smile is something that she can't see. Oh, you lucky so and so. I wonder what's wrong. Hi, I'm Gretchen Rubin, the host of Happier. And in the latest episode, we'll talk about why you might want to cultivate a shrine. And also, we'll discuss some questions to help you figure out how to set up habits in a way that will work for you. You can subscribe to Happier at iTunes.com slash Panoply.